to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Abraham Lincoln's reputation as the great emancipator has become obsolete in an age when historical scholarship has acknowledged the agency of America's four million enslaved people in their own liberation. But in recognizing that Lincoln did not liberate the slaves single-handedly, some have gone beyond this to argue that therefore Lincoln must have been himself a racist who didn't desire black liberation. As good historians do, Professor Jonathan W. White has gone back to the evidence to look at Lincoln's personal action interactions with African Americans when Lincoln was in the White House in two new books, A House Built by Slaves, African American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, and To Address You as My Friend, African Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln. We'll talk with Professor White tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, home of the Pirates, but not speaking for the Pirates or the History Department or any part of East Carolina University, just speaking for myself, as our guest will likewise do tonight, and as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. It is the second Wednesday in the month of February 2020. We are approaching the anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, so it's an appropriate time to be discussing some Lincoln books tonight. Uh, It's also, since it's 2022, it's the season of the Winter Olympics, which are just got underway in the past week. I am normally a big fan of uh, winter sports. I grew up in Michigan, but I really was not interested this time around, I have to say, uh, or at least I thought I wasn't until I was exposed to one of the innovative new events that you can uh, watch in this year's Winter Olympics for the first time. And I'm talking, of course, about mixed doubles curling. Uh, 
I remember watching curling as a boy on uh, CBC from uh, across the Detroit River in Windsor. Canadian television would have weekly curling uh, competitions, and so it seemed like a natural thing. I was surprised to learn most people don't uh, don't know anything about the sport, but mixed mixed doubles takes it to a whole new level. Most uh, some of the teams, uh, which each consist of uh, uh, male and a female athlete, many of the teams apparently are married to one another, which makes it like a reality show, but with a, a real gold medal at stake. I'm thinking that next time they do this, uh, they could add this by having the, the couples simultaneously have to decide what they're going to watch on television after the match or prepare a dinner for four or some other moderately high-stress domestic task while they're competing on the rink with another team. That I think ratings will go through the roof. Uh, as far as the other new sports in this year's Olympics, not I'm not as wild about the, the big air event where they go down a ski jump and then do a bunch of uh, flippy and spinny things through the air. My thought about that is I think I could do that myself once. I could go down the ramp and then gyrate wildly through the air, but the landing would be problematic uh, and possibly fatal, so uh, I don't intend to try it. This week's unpaying and indeed fully unaware sponsor of tonight's show is the American Battlefield Trust, uh, which I get uh, a lot of email from, but I donate to them through my uh, paycheck deduction every uh, two weeks, so I don't really pay attention when they ask for individual donations. But this past week, one stood out. It is for the Slaughter Pen Farm at Fredericksburg. We talked about that with uh, Frank O'Reilly a few weeks ago. That's where the real potentially decisive moment was at the Battle of Fredericksburg. It's not a place many visitors go to. And the American Battlefield Trust bought the land there and saved it from being uh, turned into an industrial park back in 2006 for $12 million. This was the biggest land transaction in battlefield preservation history, at least up to that point. And they had to borrow most of that money. They've paid 90% of it off. It's still owe $1.2 million. And if they get uh, enough donations to make the next payment by April 1st for 400000 they have a donor who will cover the remainder of it and pay off the whole thing. So if you donate a dollar, someone else will put in two. It's a good deal. If you want to help save the slaughter pen, go to info at battlefields.org, and you can find out how the American Battlefield Trust is trying to save that land. Uh, seems like a good cause. While you're online, you can also go to impedimentsofwar.org, the website that Mark Gaffney has created for us, and find out there or from the Impediments of War Facebook page, who will be on the show next. Uh, you'll see that uh, next week, the 16th, we'll have Meg Grayling with us, author of a biography of Elmer Ellsworth called First Fallen. We'll follow that up with uh, Jacqueline Boudel on the 23rd of February. She is a photographic specialist with the National Archives. Talk, and she'll have some news and information about Civil War photographs, their preservation, uh, and what they're finding and preserving at the archives. And on March 2nd, we will follow that up with uh, Lorian Foote returning to the show. She has been here before. Her new book is called Rights of Retaliation. 
It's got a longer subtitle than that, which I have not memorized, so I'm going to look it up right quick. Uh, what's that book called? Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. And then a week from now, four weeks from today, it will be March 9th, and it will be spring break. Uh, woohoo, we all say, uh, get out the tiny umbrellas to put in your drinks, and we will all vicariously imagine that we don't have anything to do for a week. Uh, more good shows after that, uh, but we'll announce them later. Uh one more quick announcement, reminder, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours has their regular set of uh, This Hallowed Ground tours in May and June. The May tour is sold out. I heard from uh, one of the guests going on the June tour wrote to me today. I'm looking forward to meeting the rest of the, them, and I hope hope you are among them. And if you haven't signed up, it's not too late to do so. Uh, go to the Stephen Ambrose website. Uh while you're at the Impediments of War website, you can always donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which is sometimes used for books, sometimes used for other things. We don't talk about that publicly. That's why it's not uh, uh, not not tax deductible. There's no transparency. Well, tonight's guest, uh, speaking of transparency, I have a, an important question to ask him in just a moment. Uh, our guest is Jonathan W. White. He has been to the show before, not once but twice. Uh, John, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Last time you were here, we talked about uh, Midnight in America, the, uh, uh, the book you wrote about nighttime during the Civil War. Yeah. I, I, I used that this morning talking to a, a colleague about, about examples of how the Civil War field of scholarship continues to expand and find new directions that no one had thought of. Uh, and and I'm curious, how, how's the reception to that? How, how's that book done for you? Oh, it's been, it's been, it's done well. It's been assigned in a few classes. I think now that it's in paperback, I'm hoping it'll get assigned in a few more. It was a best book for Civil War Monitor that year. Lorian Foote actually selected it, which I was very mm-hmm. grateful for. So yeah, it's, it's done well. <laughs> Yeah, boy, that's a challenge. That that uh, Civil War Monitor best book. You get to pick two books, and there's so many good ones every yeah. year. Uh, but no, that book certainly deserved it. It's certainly one of the most original books in in a long time. Thank um, you. Now, so what I wanted to say about transparency tonight. Uh, normally, we talk with the author about a recent book. Tonight, you have two recent books, mm-hmm. but not really because there's also uh, your edited work uh, called My. What is here? My work among the freedmen, right. Civil War and Reconstruction Letters of Harriet M. Buss, which you co-edited with Lydia J. Davis, and uh, Ex parte Milligan Reconsidered, Race and Civil Liberties from the Lincoln Administration to the War on Terror, which you co-edited with Stuart Winger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, what stimulants do you use that enable <laughs> you not to sleep but to be productive 24 hours a day? How do you do this? Well, my wife and I are actually mixed doubles curlers, and that keeps us <laughs> energized so that I can work late at night. Very good. That's that's the secret. I'll have to keep that in mind and get get a rink in the backyard and see if I can take <laughs> that up. So, um, well, the, these are all you know, fascinating topics. Uh, I guess sort of this embarrassment of riches, let's start with uh, the book To Address You as My Friend, African-American yeah. Letters to Abraham Lincoln. 
which you've edited. The foreword is by Edna Green Medford, who is, is an old pal. Uh, Edna and I go back many years to the uh, Knox College uh, Lincoln Studies Center. That oh sure yeah. Uh, you know Doug Wilson and and uh, Rodney Davis ran for many years, and we would we would meet there every year and and complain to each other about what it was like to be a department chair. That was great fun. Mm. Uh, but but she's a wonderful scholar. How, how did you connect with her to write the foreword for your book? I've known Edna for a number of years, and she and I serve on a couple of boards together, the Abraham Lincoln Institute in Washington mm-hmm. and the Lincoln Forum, which meets every year in Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And then, But she was actually one of the peer reviewers for the book. And ah. so she wrote a really nice review of it. And then I sat on it for a number of years, and I didn't know she was the peer reviewer. And we were out at dinner one night in D.C., and she said, so what's happening with your book? And I Hmm. said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I was a reviewer for it. It needs to be published. And I said, oh, wow, I had no idea. (laughs) And so um, when it got closer to publication, I asked her if she'd be willing to write a foreword, and she did. You mentioned the Lincoln Forum. Uh, One of the founders of that was Harold Holzer. Mm-hmm. We're playing the six degrees game here, sort of. Uh, Harold started his publishing career in the Lincoln world, I think, with his book, uh, The Lincoln Mailbag, uh, in which he published a collection of letters that Lincoln mm-hmm. had received in the White House, uh, some of which were from African-American writers. Uh, so my first question is, did, did he leave you anything, or did he not get all the best letters first? He has a lot of good ones in that book, for sure. I was um, fortunately, I was able to find a lot of things that hadn't been seen before because the Papers of Abraham Lincoln Project in Springfield, Illinois, is scanning as many Lincoln documents as they can. And so I found a lot of things just buried in those records that no one's really accessed yet. So one question that I think a lot of people would have, just upon seeing a title like this, African-American Letters to Abraham Lincoln, would be to ask how many African-Americans were able to write letters in during Lincoln's presidency. Uh, well, well, wasn't literacy uh, extraordinarily low at that time? Yeah, literacy rates are very low for African-Americans in that period. I, I think they're somewhere between 5 and 10%. And so it's it's very difficult to find the voices of black americans from the 19th century oftentimes the voices that we get from black americans are mediated through a white person who overheard a conversation or had a conversation with an african-american and then writes it down and it's it's may not be exactly what the african-american person said and so in this book i was able to also build on the shoulders i should say of the freedmen and southern society project Mm-hmm. which has unearthed thousands of African-American voices at the National Archives. And uh, so 14 of the letters that I have are also in those papers, but then a lot of them are ones that haven't appeared in print before, or at least not in full. So there, so there's new material here. This mm-hmm. is not just stuff that we've seen before. Yeah. Um, you mentioned transcriptions. Uh, you had to transcribe these letters, presumably, yourself. I did, yeah. Talk about that process. I more and more, my students are are people who have never learned to write cursive. Right. Um, I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing, and they find 19th century documents impenetrable. They are 19th century documents are hard enough as it is, 
reading the letters of a semi-literate writer is, you know, I'm bald now and I think I've lost a lot of hair over the course of doing this sort of work. I, the way I did it was after I would find the letter, I would have a scan of it on my computer next to a Word document and I would be looking from one to the other as I typed them out. Then I proofread them once or twice on my own and then over the course of two summers, I worked with two separate students who assisted me in proofreading them a second and third time. And that way I had two sets of eyes on them at the same time. And so for hours and hours and hours, we sat in my office, one of us reading the original letter, the other looking at the transcription to make sure that they were as close to the original as possible. And one of the things I say at the beginning of the book is, with letters like these, it's impossible to have a perfect transcription. There's going to be marks and let and words on the page where you could interpret a word multiple different ways. And so I tried to be as faithful to the original writers as I could. And my hope is that that will convey the voice of the writers to the reader. I mean, it, it is a challenge. Uh, People use different systems of punctuation, different systems of capitalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you try to regularize that for, for the reader in this book? I didn't regularize anything like capitalization. I, I tried to render things exactly as they appeared on the page, with one exception. And that is, I borrowed the policy that Ira Berlin, one of my graduate school mentors, and Leslie mm-hmm. Rowland and the Friedman and Southern Society Project did, which was... In reading a letter, if you thought you had a good sense of where a sentence break would be, I inserted five blank spaces, and then uh, three in a number of cases where a comma would be. And I'll tell you, I shouldn't (laughs) do this inside baseball, but you'll appreciate this. When you send a book to copy editors now, they tend to just go through and blanket delete all of the extraneous blank spaces. So if there's two Mm. spaces after a period, and the copy editor didn't realize not to do that. And so I had done all this work in the lead up to submitting the book. And then I had to do it all again when I was copy editing the manuscript. So it was a labor of love. It was one of the hardest books I've ever done. But I'm really happy with how it came out. Well, it is uh, it, it is a fascinating book and, and does give us insight into a population that doesn't have its voice heard. Uh, very often for all the historical reasons you cite. We're talking about the book called To Address You as My Friend, African Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln. It's edited by our guest tonight, Jonathan W. White. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Jonathan W. White. He's the editor of To Address You as My Friend, African Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln, and also the author of the book A House Built by Slaves that we'll talk about in just a little while, uh, two for the price of one this evening, as Ernie Harwell used to say, broadcasting Detroit Tigers baseball after a double play. Uh, the the, the uh, letters, uh, John, that you, you talk about here, what, what are they about? What what were the things that uh, African-American correspondents felt moved to write to the president of the United States about? The thing that's remarkable to me is that they wrote to Lincoln about almost any issue that was going on in their lives. So for many of them, they're writing about military service. Either maybe they want to serve in the military or they've been recruited into the ranks in an unjust way and they want discharge from the army Many write about getting unequal pay as soldiers. Some have been convicted in, by court-martial, and so they are trying to get pardoned from Lincoln. And then you've got soldiers' families writing about all of these different issues. And so I would guess that about a third of the letters, maybe a little bit more, has to do with military service. The other letters that I found that I think – well, there's one group that I found that I'm really happy to have found because I don't think they've been utilized by scholars much mm-hmm. at all – are petitions for pardon. So Abraham Lincoln, as president, can pardon federal crimes, and he mm-hmm. can also pardon crimes in the District of Columbia. There's no governor in D.C., so mm-hmm. people convicted of a crime in D.C. go to the president. And the pardon records at the National Archives are voluminous, but they are extraordinarily rich. And I found a number of letters either from African-Americans who were convicted of a crime or a victim of a crime or the parent of a convict who write to Lincoln asking for pardon. And these give just an incredible portrait of what life was like for people in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. And then the last set of letters, I think, address Lincoln about all sorts of issues related to equality before the law, African-Americans seeking political rights, or Christian ministers wanting money and support for their ministries, and then African-Americans sending either gifts to Lincoln or writing to thank him for what he had done during the Civil War. The most curious letter might be from a guy from outside of Philadelphia 
who was having a legal dispute over property, and he wrote to Lincoln addressing him as something like Honorable you know, A. Lincoln Esquire, and was basically looking for Lincoln to be his lawyer. So <laughs> just really interesting things coming out of the correspondence. Uh, the pardon category was interesting to me because when I saw it in the table of contents, I said, well, par- pardons, everybody knows Lincoln is always pardoning soldiers for falling asleep on duty or running away in battle. The generals hate it, but Lincoln you know, d- wants to spread some joy around when he can. But you've you've discovered this is not these are not military pardons; these are civil right. pardons, and and this is not something that that scholars have touched on very much. Yeah, uh, historians need to get into those records at the National Archives in College Park. They are I've spent a lot of time working in them. I used to be a historian for the federal courts before I became a professor, mm-hmm. and I spent a year at the National Archives looking at all sorts of records. And when I went through pardon records, I just thought, wow, these are things that scholars need to mine. They touch on every aspect of life in America. Well, hopefully uh, people will will take what you've written here and follow that up. Uh, one thing about this book is that the letters are, are heavily annotated, not, not to scare listeners off, not that there's a footnote on every line and then you have to look at the bottom to see, but, but you put them in context. You write mm-hmm. uh, anywhere from a paragraph to a page or two explaining what the context is of the letter, how it came to be, and and what Lincoln did about it, if that's known. Right. Uh, and so, in that sense, that it, I can see why you said this was a hard book to write. There's a lot of research involved in. Uh, it must have been to track down what, where some of these letters came from. Yeah, I have become very adept at using Ancestry.com and Fold3.com and Newspapers.com and other sources like that. It's it's very difficult to track down. African-American genealogy. And because a lot of the people don't show up in the records before 1863 or 65 or 1870. And if they were born into slavery, it's going to be very hard to learn about their early lives. And But what I wanted to do was try to humanize the writers as much as possible. And so I would look into any records I could to try to figure out who these people are, why are they writing to Lincoln? What is, as you said, what is the outcome? So that readers get a sense of, you know, these people as people. One of the things I always try to do when I teach my students about Lincoln is disabuse them of the notion that Lincoln is a marble icon in Washington, D.C. I try to get them to think about he's a real human being or was a real human being. And in the same way, when I assign readings in class, I want my students to realize these aren't just words on a page. These were This was a document that someone sat down and wrote out with a pen at some point. And so my hope is that by giving some biographical information that it helps to humanize them. Some of them were really easy. If it's mm-hmm. a soldier who's petitioning for pardon after being court-martialed, or if it's a, a person who's been convicted in court, I can find the court record and be able to piece together the story there. But even in those cases, I'm still discovering more. So there's a, one woman in the pardon records. Mm-hmm. She was Her name is Elizabeth Shorter. She is sexually assaulted by a white man, becomes pregnant, and his wife gives her money to stay quiet about what's happened between the husband and her. And she tries to get the man in in trouble and imprisoned for what he's done to her, and he gets acquitted. And then he has her arrested for larceny, for stealing the money that his wife had given her. 
and she gets convicted and she writes to Lincoln and Lincoln takes her petition and pardons her within two days, which is, I think, probably the fastest pardon that Lincoln ever issued. And since the book came out, I've become really interested in this woman and I started to do more research and I, I've discovered that she was actually born into slavery in Washington, D.C., and she became free under the D.C. Emancipation Act of, August, of April 16, 1862. And using those D.C. Emancipation records, I've now been able to piece together her life story a little bit more than I was able to in the book. And so I guess, you know, the research can never end. You can always find more things. And I'm hoping I'll be able to write about her in greater detail at some point. Wow. The... Uh I was going to ask you if there's anything really that, that really surprised you, but let me say one thing that surprised me reading these letters uh, was you have a section on colonization that a mm -hmm. lot of African Americans wrote to Lincoln uh, opposing the idea of colonizing former slaves outside the United States, but there were some who supported the idea. Mm -hmm. that, that I didn't was unaware of. Yeah, and this will tie into the other book as well. In 1862, you have several black leaders go to the White House and support colonization and try to get Lincoln on board. You have other African Americans who are writing to Lincoln saying, you know, we support this and, you know, will you give us money to help support it? And so I've, I've wondered, and there's no way to, I think, confirm this, but I've wondered if these meetings and this correspondence may have given Lincoln a false sense of black support for colonization that just simply wasn't there. But if that's what he's receiving and hearing, he, made it, he might have thought more of it than he should have for that reason. Well, that, that is a good segue to uh, the other book, and, and we can go back and forth between sure. them here. Uh, but this other book you've written, A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, uh, let me throw out a challenge about this book. You, you talk in the introduction about Lincoln's reputation, uh, and I mentioned that, alluded to it in the introduction to our, our talk tonight, that no one calls Lincoln the great emancipator seriously any longer, That, that as if it were all his emancipation were the act of one person. Right. Uh, Everyone acknowledges that it's far broader than that, but as you point out, uh, some people have followed uh, the, uh, 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 the the forced into glory thesis. Uh, um, uh, why am I blanking on my friend? Lerone Bennett. Lerone Bennett. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lerone Bennett's argument that. Uh, you know, Lincoln was himself uh, a, a white supremacist and not interested in liberation except as a side accidental side effect of winning the war. So my challenge, so in, in writing this book, you point out uh, that these many interactions that we'll talk about show Lincoln treating African-Americans with respect and dignity. Is there some danger that this is the the, I have a black friend, so I can't be racist defense of Lincoln? Mm. Um, that that it, people can be you know, personal relations have nothing to do with systematic racism. Um, one could be you know complicit in the system, yet still personally be perfectly nice to to other people. Uh, is, is there a risk that, that that's what's happening here with Lincoln? It's a great question. I'd never thought about it in that way before. I can see where the question's coming from. That that's really interesting. 
You know, the thing about Lincoln, I, hmm, I don't think that's what's going on in this case, mm-hmm. because I don't think that in that era, he would win political points by saying, hey, look, I have a black friend. Whereas in maybe the late 20th, or early 21st century, mm-hmm. someone who's overtly racist is going to say, yeah, but I've got a black friend over here. That's not going to help Lincoln in 1863 or 64. And I think Lincoln knew that. Lincoln knew that showing kindness to African Americans would upset a huge part of the electorate in the North. And yet he did it anyway. And Frederick Douglass talked about this. Douglass said that no one understood better than Lincoln the political cost that you could take as a politician by welcoming African Americans to the White House and treating them kindly. But Lincoln did it anyway. And and so I, I really do believe that Lincoln came during the war to sincerely appreciate the input that he was getting from his black visitors and to sincerely listen to them patiently and do what he could to try to help them. And I, I don't think it was shallow in his sense and I don't I don't think it was for show either because he didn't have a lot to gain by doing it um at least politically he didn't have a lot to gain I think personally he did and I think that his interactions with African Americans in a number of cases had important effects on his thinking and um so yeah I don't know if that fully answers it but that's kind of my initial thought it it's I, it was a hard question to ask because I'm I'm very sympathetic to the view that Lincoln was in many ways ahead of his time and that to focus on the elements in which he was a person of his time at the expense of that is, is to misread the historical record to uh, you know quote bits and pieces here where Lincoln says things that, that might reek of white supremacy are not you know are, are not consistent with the the bulk of his record uh, right. either what he said or thought or did and yet people are doing that so I, i'm not sympathetic to that and i'm sympathetic to where you're going with this but i thought that the question is worth considering whether either lincoln was doing that and i think you make a convincing defense that he wasn't or whether the book itself is is doing that as if to say to lincoln's detractors today uh, yeah no look lincoln's got a black friend um <laughs> But let me push on from that with the uh, – uh, the fact is that most people who study Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, uh, will be familiar with the fact that Lincoln met Frederick Douglass in the White House mm-hmm. or that he entertained the delegation uh, to whom he made the, the, the speech about colonization. Uh, these are, are famous occurrences where Lincoln famously has an African-American person or, or persons into the White House. Uh, after that, the, the the well goes dry for most most readers. Uh, were there a lot of other incidents? Uh, yeah, how much are we I talking think, about? I think Lincoln met hundreds of African-Americans in wartime Washington. Hmm. As he's traveling around the city, he's meeting with black refugees. There's a really beautiful photograph that I was able to reproduce in the book that shows contrabands at the contraband camp holding songbooks, preparing to sing for Lincoln. And there are accounts that come down to us of him going there and singing with them and, you know, tears welling in his eyes as he's doing that. 
There are dozens of meetings at the White House. Some of these are private interviews. A single individual will come in and talk to Lincoln. Some of them involve larger groups, maybe 11 or 12 or 13 black ministers at a time. And then in, on January 2nd, 1865, hundreds of African-Americans come for the New Year's reception. And that's a moment that in some ways is really remarkable and in some ways unfortunate. The president had let it be known in the newspapers earlier, right before New Year's, that anyone who wanted to would be welcome to come meet him at the White House. In other words, all people of all colors can come. And so African-Americans come out in great numbers. And unfortunately, either the guards or possibly Mary Lincoln is unhappy when there are these African-Americans trying to come in through the crowd. And so um, they, the rest get told to wait. But to his credit, Lincoln waits until every person who wants to can come through and shake his hand. And um, so they're beginning in April of 1862 and then and then go all the way through the end of the war. African-Americans are coming into the White House, some in public ways, some in private ways. And Lincoln always shakes their hand. He, with the exception of the black delegation meeting that you mentioned, he always listens to them, treats them with respect and and they are then elated and go talk about it or write about it. And, and word gets out about how he's treating them at the White House. And he's treating them in ways that were unprecedented at that time. It just no other president had behaved this way. Well, that ties in with what you said earlier, that, that there was even a political cost to doing this, because you, you quote a lot of newspapers in the North that, that criticize Lincoln for doing this or mock him for doing this and mm -hmm. suggest that this is leveling and equalizing and social equality and all these things that that, that are anathema to a lot of white Northerners, uh, as well as white Southerners, of course. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a price that he has to pay for that. Well, there are... There are some really interesting individual incidents I want to ask you about. Uh, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight, Jonathan W. White, author of A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jonathan W. White, author of A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. So we've been talking about the uh, you know, surprisingly numerous visits to the White House. One way that they might be surprising to the modern readers, how, how easily anyone, black or white, got access to the White House. And you talk about this in, in one of the interludes. You, you structure this book with chapters and interludes. Uh, you talk in one of them about the, the openness of the White House, how anyone can go in. It, it's a far cry from today. Yeah, both of us are sitting in our offices on campus, and we hold office hours, and students can come in and talk to us. And we often don't realize that 19th century presidents held office hours much like a college professor does. And so people would start showing up very early in the morning and just line up in the hallways and down the stairs waiting for their turn to go in and talk to Lincoln. And they could talk to him about anything they wanted to. And um at some point then in after the first year of the war, African-Americans begin availing themselves of that opportunity as well. And so when, when was the first recorded visit by an African-American to Lincoln's White House? The first one that I could find was mm-hmm. Bishop Daniel Payne, who is an AME bishop, and he's in Washington, D.C. at the time. And Congress has just passed the D.C. Emancipation Act. And it's unclear whether or not Lincoln will sign it. And so Payne goes to the White House and has a 45-minute conversation with Lincoln, urging Lincoln to sign the bill. And Lincoln doesn't give him an answer in that moment, although I don't think – my personal view is I don't think there was any doubt in Lincoln's mind that he would sign it because Mm – It had two of the three ingredients he wanted, and he believed it was constitutional. But Lincoln wouldn't give Payne an answer, and Lincoln said, you know, for as many people coming here supporting it, there's just as many opposing it. But Payne did go away from that meeting with a really great impression of Lincoln. Payne had actually visited the White House in the 1840s after the Princeton disaster, which killed a number of cabinet officials. Mm-hmm. And Payne had been in the White House to deliver a funeral oration for a black servant who had been killed in that explosion. And he did not receive have a nice reception from President Tyler. Lincoln gave <laughs> a much different, better reception. The... Uh Boy, that that's an interesting comparison, Tyler and Lincoln, yeah. certainly, in in a lot of ways. The that's a kind of a thread that runs through here is that that we see visitors coming to these receptions, and as you mentioned earlier at the New Year's reception, '65, the uh, the staff may not be as welcoming as Lincoln was to to uh, to black visitors. Now, some people appear in this book who well, appear in the other book to address you as my friend, where you use quote letters written to Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Some of those letters were delivered by hand, and you describe the encounters uh, in in the house built by slaves in the other book. Uh, so, so we've got this overlap. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, the Louisiana uh, Creole delegation, uh, mm-hmm. E. Arnold Berteneau, Jean-Baptiste Rudonnet. Uh, th- tell us about their meeting with Abraham Lincoln. 
Yeah, so in the spring of 1864, at least three delegations of Southern African Americans go to the White House to petition for the right to vote. And in each of these cases, Lincoln says to them, this is a state matter. This isn't something I have control over as president. The Constitution leaves suffrage to the states. But he does show sympathy for their cause and says that he believes they should have the right to vote. And so in one of these meetings, the it was two uh, light-skinned Creoles from Louisiana, very wealthy men. They come to the White House in early March of 1864, bearing a petition that's signed by a thousand people. They're the first two signatories, and then some of the next ones are 28 veterans, black veterans of the War of 1812 who had fought with Andrew Jackson. And they bring this petition, and the petition basically says – Black, we are wealthy, we're educated, we pay taxes, we are serving the military, our ancestors served in the revolution and the War of 1812, we deserve the right to vote. And again, Lincoln greets them very kindly and says, I agree, you should have the right to vote, I can't do anything about it, but if you can come up with a justification for why black suffrage would be good for the military, then I can support it. And so they go away from that meeting and they kind of regroup and come up with a, a different strategy or a different rationale. And on March 10th, they write out a new petition. And this one makes the case, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, mm-hmm. but this one makes the case that there are there's a large disloyal population in the South. But African-Americans have been completely loyal to the Union. And if you want to preserve the peace after the Civil War, the best way to do that is to give black men the right to vote. Now, I cannot prove this for certain, and I tried everything I could to find evidence, but I think these two men returned to the White House on March 12th and present this petition to Lincoln. One way or the other, he did get it. this new petition. Mm -hmm. And I think he was persuaded by their argument because the very next day, March 13th, he sends a letter to the governor-elect of Louisiana, Michael Hahn, and he he tries to persuade Hahn to support black suffrage and he's for men who have who have served in the military. And Lincoln says, because those voters in some trying time to come may keep the jewel of liberty within the family of freedom. And I love that line to keep the jewel of liberty within the family of freedom. Lincoln was saying, if our small R republic is going to survive, black people need to be a part of that. And from that point forward, Lincoln starts working behind the scenes to push for black suffrage. He won't come out publicly in favor of it until April 11th, 1865, but he is working behind the scenes. That is a great, uh, great vignette and, and a great line. My uh, old friend and late colleague David Long here at East mm-hmm. Carolina University titled his book on the 64 election, The Jewel of Liberty, uh, and, and wrote about that uh, from that same quote. The uh, the idea you mentioned, if I recall correctly, that Lincoln actually looked at these petitions or looked at one of these petitions and suggested that it be revised and worked with them in some ways. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. And I don't know which petition it was. If it was, I imagine it was the first one, but it may have been the second one. Neither of them has marks on it that would show the where when the revision was done. Mm-hmm. But John W. Forney, the newspaper editor and clerk of the House of Representatives, talked about this. 
that Lincoln and one of the men sat down next to each other, talked through some revisions, and Forney said that there were some white men who were present in the room and that their prejudices received a shock from seeing how Lincoln is going to just sit down and, and listen and interact in this way. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's more than just sitting and listening, but to in you know, to co-edit with someone. There, there's yeah. hardly any more, you know, close intellectual cooperation than to do that. And uh, uh, you have to work as equals to make that work. That That's really a remarkable scene. Uh, another visitor who who writes to Lincoln and brings a petition uh, is Abraham Galloway of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, and can you say a few words about his uh, story? Sure. So Galloway was born into slavery in North Carolina, I think in the 1830s, as a young man, he and another slave escape on a turpentine ship, and they get to Philadelphia to William Still, and by the time they get there, the blood is just coming out of their pores because of the turpentine, and William Still describes this in his book, The Underground Railroad. Well, Galloway would go on to serve as a spy and a scout for Union soldiers, Ben Butler and others. And after the Emancipation Proclamation comes around, he is sort of the center of black military recruitment in his part of North Carolina, and white Union officers have to work with him and through him in order to recruit soldiers. And in April of 1864, he and five other African Americans, some of whom had been born free in North Carolina, some of whom had been born enslaved, they go to the White House, and they too want to push Lincoln for the right to vote, and they say, look... We ser- our, our African Americans served in the military in the Revolution. African Americans could vote in North Carolina in North Carolina until 1835, and it was without incident. There was no problem with it. We should have the right to vote. And again, Lincoln says you should have the right to vote, but this is a state matter. But keep fighting for your rights, essentially. And after this meeting, the delegation goes to New York and then back to North Carolina, and they talk about their experience. And they talk about how surprising it was to them that they were welcomed through the front door. One of them says something like, if you were to go to the front door of the lowest magistrate in Craven County, you'd be ordered around the back where the N-words belong. And, but Lincoln, Lincoln, the chief magistrate of the nation, doesn't treat them that way. And so, again, one of them said, if I could go to Massachusetts to vote for Lincoln, I would do that. I mean, again, these meetings have a really profound impact on the people who meet Lincoln. They, they certainly have a profound impact on, on the most well-known representative of these stories, Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass, who meets yeah. with Lincoln on several occasions. Um, and, uh, you know, Douglass will go on. They influence the way Douglass thinks of Lincoln even after the war, uh, when, when, Lincoln, when Douglass speaks about Lincoln. Yeah, very much so. Douglas is extraordinarily critical of Lincoln in 1860 and 61 and 62. Mm-hmm. He calls Lincoln the South's greatest slave hound and abolitionism's worst enemy. When he reads about the the meeting with the black delegation in August of 62, he he writes a letter or an, an article in his newspaper where he just criticizes Lincoln as not being a good writer. I mean, it's just very harsh in his criticism. And then in August of 1863, Douglas is furious that black soldiers are not getting equal pay and that Lincoln is not doing enough to protect them from Confederate atrocities like murder or or enslavement if they're captured on the battlefield. And so he goes to the White House unannounced, uninvited, 
and shows up and meets with Lincoln and they have a conversation and, and Douglas pushes Lincoln and Douglas isn't satisfied with everything Lincoln says, but he's struck by how Lincoln treats him as a man and as an equal and makes no condescension towards him because of the color of his skin. But I think the more remarkable meeting is one that happens a year later. In August of 1864, Lincoln is convinced that he's going to lose re-election, and he's worried that when he's out of office, the slaves who are still in bondage are going to be stuck in slavery, and that they're not running away to union lines as quickly and in as large numbers as he wishes they would. So he calls Douglas to the White House, and they sit down together, and they come up with a plan to send bands of scouts into the Confederacy to tell the slaves, essentially, run away now, get free while you can, because once Lincoln's out of office, the Emancipation Proclamation will be rescinded, the Union armies might be forced to retreat, and your golden opportunity will be gone. Now, fortunately, nothing had to come of this meeting. Things get better for the Union war effort, Lincoln gets reelected, but this meeting has a profound impact on Douglas and is really important for how we think about the Emancipation Proclamation or emancipation as a whole. (laughs) The strategy that Lincoln had here had nothing to do with military necessity, had nothing to do with winning the war. It had everything to do with spreading freedom. And Douglas could see that in Lincoln. And and I think that, that moment is what really causes Douglas to have a deep, profound respect and admiration and love for Lincoln. Well, that that comes through uh, in this book, in both these books, you really get a sense of how, what an impact it had on individuals to be able to interact with Abraham Lincoln, with the President of the United States in this fashion. Um, I, I almost hesitate to ask after the, the onslaught uh, that you had produced recently, do you have another project in the hopper? I do. I've got a couple of things that I'm working on. Brian Jordan and I are co-editing a collection of essays on grave sites during the Civil War. And so that's out for peer review right now. And fingers crossed, we should be getting word by the end of the month, and hopefully it will be positive. I've written a biography of a convicted slave trader and Confederate blockade runner during the war, and I'm trying to find a publisher for that right now. Um, and then I've written a children's book about Lincoln that I'm I'm hoping I might be able to find a publisher for. So I'm I'm keeping busy with those things. Wow, well, those are, are fascinating projects. Uh, we will su- certainly have to have you back on the show to talk about uh, one or two or all three of them when they come to fruition. Because uh, if they're anything like as enlightening and entertaining as these books, uh, they will be very welcome, listeners. If you have the slightest interest in Abraham Lincoln, and if you're listening to this show, I'm guessing you do, uh, you'll want to read A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, and to address you as my friend, African-Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln, both written or edited by our guest tonight, Jonathan W. White. John, it's been a pleasure, as always, having you on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.